0: Welcome to Renegading. The governor of the Bank of England is a public servant. He recently claimed that the UK almost went bankrupt at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. But how does a country that issues its own currency go bust? Josh, welcome back to Renegade Inc. Thanks. Great to be here, Ross. What a a different six months makes. Uh, Beginning of the year, Boris Johnson was talking about the UK becoming Singapore on Thames. Uh, He was uh, saying on Twitter that this is going to be a brilliant year for the UK. Turns out uh, that that isn't the case. The Treasury have had to bail out many, many businesses in the UK, indiscriminately, it seems. They've fired cash at uh, businesses, with old business models, uh, airlines, whatever it might be, uh, were they left with no real option? Do they just have to take that action? I think
1: in the short term, um, they have taken the right approach to provide support for uh, firms fairly indiscriminately, um, just to try and you know, keep, keep jobs going, essentially, and maintain uh, a level of productive capacity in the economy. However, at some point there needs to be a transition, and already we've, we've had some discussion about it, to start thinking about this crisis also as an opportunity, an opportunity to actually reshape our economy and restructure our economy to meet what will be the next crisis that's coming down the road, which is the climate emergency as well as, you know, wider threats to our environment, which will have massive economic impacts.
0: Do you think that the Treasury uh, missed the beat insofar as uh, the only caveat really uh, to qualify for bailout money is that you make a, quote, material contribution to the UK economy? Uh, That's such a broad brief. Wasn't it an opportunity to say, well, actually, unless you've got uh, credentials that are going to push us towards a carbon neutral economy, or unless you've got some caveat uh, within this bailout package, which talks about executive pay, uh, share buybacks, uh, your tax status. did, did Did the Treasury miss a trick there by giving such a wide Remit. I think they have put in some
1: uh, conditionalities around things like paying dividends and share buybacks, but it's probably not sufficient um, going forwards. You're right to point to these sort of corporate governance issues, which are, are driving uh, inequality and driving sort of financialization of, of UK industry. Um, and they do need to be dealt with. Um, I think it's not just the Treasury, though, it's also the Bank of England that needs to be um, implementing these sorts of of conditionalities. And I guess a a sort of broader issue is um, the type of uh, financing that firm companies are getting. So I think initially there was a a thought that this would be a much shorter term sort of shock than it looks like it's now going to be. And there was an idea that debt financing would sort of be sufficient, particularly on part of the Bank of England. But now it's becoming clear that actually many of these firms, some of the larger firms that are in less sustainable industries, aviation, uh, the oil and gas sector, and to some extent, other sectors like um, restaurants, catering, are not facing a liquidity problem. They're not facing a short-term lack of cash. They're actually facing an insolvency problem. Their business models are not sustainable. And of course, that means that if you just give them more loans with interest, you're actually just going to be building up debt, which they're not going to be able to pay back. Um, So you're actually almost making the problem worse. So then the question I think is, is there a different type of intervention that might still preserve jobs, but enables um, the government, that's, you know, the taxpayer who's putting this money in, to have a stake in those firms and be able to perhaps help transition them towards a zero carbon economy or a more socially acceptable business model, corporate governance model. And, and obviously equity is, is one of the options that could be considered there. At the moment, we're just in danger of cropping up sectors that in the medium term just, just really don't have a future. It seems that the central banks
2: across the world on a coordinated basis don't seem to understand the difference between per- provision of liquidity and solvency. You can't keep providing money to an insolvent zombie institution and expect that's gonna rectify chronic management problems to that company. Prime examples, are a couple in the airline sector. If you take American Airlines, they went out and did $13 billion in ponzi stock buybacks. The CEO paid himself $150 million. Now they're seeking $10 billion in taxpayer bailouts. That money, the $13 billion that they used to buy their own shares back, should have been used to strengthen their balance sheet before they went out on a reckless uh, spending spree to buy their shares back because the CEO was paid in equity. I've never seen that in my career where a CEO is paid entirely in stock. However, in the long run, this will see the company go into bankruptcy. The company is a walking zombie. You're, you have a lot of the Robin Hood uh, vigilantes out there that are buying bankrupt shares. I mean, you know, the stock is a- absolutely worthless and they've had to go to, out to the government and ask for $10 billion in bailouts. 10 billion in bailouts will not be enough for American Airlines. American Airlines will be one of the casualties. But I have seen this time and time again in several different sectors that this happens. The central banks not
1: understanding the difference between liquidity and solvency. The challenge here is that governments for too long, I think, have, have taken this approach that they should only intervene in the private sector, in the market, where there's a clear case of a sort of market failure, um, and, and it just requires the government to come in and you know tax a little bit here, tweak a little bit there, level the playing field, de-risk, you know these types of phrases. What we actually need now is a very different sort of approach. We, we need you know when companies are facing insolvency and mass unemployment, we need the state to come in with a clear direction, future direction for that sector in mind, whether it's to decarbonize it, whether it's to just to create uh, more job-rich types of business models um, and push that through. And that is what we call at Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose, a a market shaping rather than a market fixing uh, type approach to to policy. And there's plenty of evidence from history that that states can do this, right? So if you look at um, the US, for example, much of the defense spending in the US has been at, at the heart of the innovation that's led to things like the internet and, and mobile smartphones. And, and we can do the same here in, in the UK, if, if governments, I think, have the ambition uh, to do that. Um, that, that. That's the question. And my, my concern is governments are still very much in this kind of um, intervene on a short term basis, provide the liquidity, hope that the market sorts itself out.
0: But that for me is a concoction for zombification, because there isn't enough uh, strategic thought about what, where to put uh, onus uh, energy uh, and, and capital. But when you then cross to Germany and look at what Angela Merkel's doing, she found it very, very difficult to get uh, private uh, sector businesses and public sector businesses to work with the state because Wolfgang Schneubel, uh, the then finance minister, was not uh, an interventionist, as he would call it. He's now out the way, and she's been able to get that bill through to say, actually, this could be, this public-private partnership could work quite nicely. We've looked at China, and actually, we're interested in this. Why why aren't we doing that in the UK? Clearly, there's potentially some political
1: issues um, as to whether the Conservative Party is, is, is the right party to bring
0: about this kind of shift. But they're free market capitalists. I mean, when you say it's the right party, surely it can't be because it's not in their DNA. However, they're being taken kicking and screaming towards this idea. One might say that, you know, I think the furlough scheme, you know, was one of the more
1: ambitious and large scale uh, interventions of any government, uh, just if you look at it relative to GDP. I think there's another issue though, which is just whether um, that there's a sort of, the right kind of culture and ambition within the civil service and within the treasury um, uh, below the leadership level around, you know, issues such as how you kind of evaluate where the, the returns you're going to get on different types of, of spending, right, on fiscal policy. So there's a strong focus on cost benefit analysis where you, you only, you know, give the go ahead for a project to go ahead if, if you can clearly demonstrate that in you know, three years time, um, you're going to have got back more money than you, than you put in. Uh, and there's a very strong culture of that in, in the Treasury. And we really need to, to be challenging that and saying, if you're making kind of what we would call mission-oriented investments, uh, that, that you don't know exactly whether you'll succeed. You might not succeed. But if you do enough of these type of investments, you might get a, a company or, or a technology that gives you returns on a much bigger scale. So this is almost a sort of venture capital, public venture capital fund type model. And of course, um, it, often it will take longer than a couple of years to get that return. So that's that's also part of it is can we can we shift that mindset within the Treasury? And of course that ties back to this austerity debate and whether or not the government you know, can run out of money and and whether or not you know debt is sustainable relative to to GDP. And and of course that issue is an interesting one because it looks like uh, the current government has kind of turned a blind eye as it were. that issue we are looking at you know
0: record levels of debt to gdp potentially mmt there is a magic money tree it turns out
1: yeah indeed and i think you know mmt is is having a renaissance obviously in the in the us but my sense is that the, the the government has realized that you know there is no alternative here to a massive expansion in deficit financing the other interesting development has been that the bank of england has you know come about as close as any central bank will do to admitting that it is um, engaging in a form of monetary financing, even if it claims it's not being forced to by the government. Um, Clearly, the fact that it's opened up this overdraft facility, the (laughs) Ways and Means facility, uh, which essentially gives the Treasury unlimited uh, free borrowing from the bank, which obviously creates money. I mean, I think the cat is out of the bag here. Um, and uh, hopefully this, this issue around debt sustainability will will kind of quietly go away, but we, we shall see.
0: Culturally, in the Treasury and the Bank of England and the political class and the business world, do we have the leadership, the innovation and the uh, ambition necessary to start this again and say, do you know what, we're going to do it properly this time?
1: Well, uh, the short answer, if you press me, would be no. <laughs> But um, I think one has to be an optimist in this kind of situation. That's Panglossian, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, because just because of uh, the, the sort of the sheer kind of disaster that will occur if we don't take that approach. I mean, we are talking about uh, potentially setting back the economy decades if we don't act rapidly and scale up uh, government uh, investment in the, in the real economy and shape. Uh, our mode of capitalism in a way that actually both creates jobs, but is also more ecologically sustainable. I think we've got a sort of, you know, two-year window here to make those radical changes. Um, and I'm hopeful that that we can. Um, there are clearly vested interests, but even the vested interests, I think, are gradually realizing that the current model is, is just not sustainable. Um, I think you can see with the uh, reaction to the... Um, killing of George Floyd that uh, people are essentially uh, losing, uh, losing patience with the current model. So that's why it is a, it is a genuine opportunity, but it remains to be seen whether, uh, as you say, the cultural change that we need can happen faster.
0: Welcome back to Renegade Inc. Before we go up to Scotland to talk to The Economist and author Laurie McFarlane, let's have a look at what you've been tweeting about in this week's Renegade Inc. Index. First up from Dave Gulson: In times of social, financial, ecological, and climate change chaos, luckily we still have enough money to bail out pesticide companies with hundreds of millions of taxpayer money. Next, from uh, existential comics, capitalists, during the good times, we took all the risk, so we deserve all the profit. Capitalists during the bad times, uh, yeah, our risk didn't pay off. We need a bailout. Next, from Jonathan Bartley, bailouts, Ryanair and EasyJet, 600 mil each. BA and Wizz Air 300 million, Nissan 600, Toyota 365 million and a cool 300 million to Rolls-Royce. Children who don't have enough to eat over the summer holidays, nothing tells you everything you need to know about this government. And finally, we have a tweet from Premseeker. Privatised UK rail companies get £3.5 billion bailout. This is in addition to the government support of £7.1 billion in 2018-19. UK railways are almost entirely state-owned by foreign countries. Fat cat salaries and tax avoidance is rife. Huge export of capital. Laurie, great to have you
3: back on Renegade Inc. Thanks for having me. Uh, And by the way, great new hair. Thank you. Yeah, this is what happens when you have a holiday on lockdown um, in your house you end up with a stupid haircut.
0: It's one of the great lockdown moments. I love it. (laughs) Um, When we're thinking about um, these bailouts, bailout Britain, uh, we talked in that first half about the indiscriminate nature of the Treasury, the Bank of England, government more broadly, just firing money at uh, any businesses really. There's an arbitrary nature to this. Does that arbitrary nature worry you at all? It
3: does. Um, The Treasury and the Bank of England in conducting the way that they're Uh, bailing out companies or or rescuing the economy in in their mind. Um, They like to take the view that that they're taking a sort of a neutral perspective so that they're not favouring some sectors over others. They're really looking at things like whether a company makes a material contribution to the economy, for example, um, as if they're not making overt choices. But of course, in reality, uh, they are making uh, choices, uh, very implicit choices, which have a big impact, obviously, on on the Bank of England side. We've seen through the um, corporate COVID financing facility uh, giving cash to uh, very carbon-intensive industries, for example, that don't really align at all with any kind of, uh, any even the Tories' commitment to decarbonizing the economy. Um, and at the same time, sort of protecting, if you like, sort of uh, holding up uh, the sort of rent economy quite significantly um, at a time when, of course, there are, you know, households and indeed many small businesses who are really, really struggling.
0: You touch on something really interesting here because it's the let's say insidious nature, a surreptitious aspect of this because there are uh, companies out there, 53 of them, the Bank of England have overtly, uh, well, not overtly, but they've, they've bailed out and all that money has gone to. But what you're touching on is something which is, uh, which is unspoken, unsaid. And it divides the economy into two. It divides the economy into rentier economics and the real economy economics. And what you're saying is the establishment has closed ranks
3: and bailed out uh, the the vested interests. Absolutely. I mean, the the protection of rentier interests is quite striking. This is something we looked at uh, in a report quite recently. Um, So if you take, for example, uh, compare the approach between landlords and tenants. Uh, So on the one hand, um, landlords, they're the only group in the economy at the moment, essentially, who the government are saying, you are guaranteed to receive your income in full. So at a time when households are being furloughed, they're seeing incomes cut, or indeed they're being shoved onto universal credit, when businesses are being told they have to shut down and seeing a collapse in revenue, uh, government say to landlords, look, uh, you can't continue to extract rents from tenants at the full rate. There is absolutely no haircut that's gonna be uh, impl- imposed or, on landlords. It's similar with the financial sector. What's striking about the UK government's approach to supposedly helping businesses is that it's all been mediated through our private banking sector. So the government's flagship business interruption loan scheme. uh, This isn't, what's important to understand, this isn't a scheme to support businesses. It's a scheme to provide a guarantee to banks. It's a scheme to provide a guarantee to de-risk bank loans to try and cajole banks to then lend to businesses. And of course, the problem there is that the banks that we have, the big banks in the UK, aren't remotely interested in lending to small businesses. They haven't been for a long time. They want to plow money into real estate and financial markets. And so while Rishi Sunak stood up and said, we've got this unprecedented 330 billion pounds of support going into businesses, that was 330 billion pounds of guarantees to banks. And a fraction of that has actually been lent out to businesses.
0: Rishi Sunak uh, is an ex-Goldman Sachs banker and the vast majority of uh, Tory MPs are buy-to-let landlords. Do you think that there's cause and effect here?
3: Oh, there's no doubt. There's no doubt about it. That Our, our whole approach to, to housing and, and the financial sector, of course, in this country is reflected very much in the composition of our parliament. I think it's very unsurprising uh, when you look at the UK as almost the sort of the poster child of the rent run economy, if you like, um, and when you look at the composition of not just in government, frankly, where you have landlords and, and former bankers in high places, but, but also the opposition as well. Um, so it's, it's unsurprising in many ways when you have policies come through that are so generous to, to landlords and so generous to, to the financial sector.
0: Don't people realise that ultimately this is a zero-sum game? House prices won't just keep going up forever. A overbloated uh, financial sector is a cost center for the uh, economy. Don't people begin to realize this? And don't the vested interests realize ultimately, uh, we're going to be on the wrong side of this?
3: I think you're absolutely right that this is ultimately a zero sum game. Um, and it, it's an interesting question as to how long the UK economy can kind of sustain this parasitical rent extraction model. Um, where we've had, you know, leading up to the financial crisis, we had obviously a massive housing boom, massive explosion in the size of the financial sector. That all came crashing down. After the financial crisis, we saw this huge attempt to basically try and prop all of this back up. Uh, Various uh, schemes in place, bail out the banks, help to buy, let's get the housing market moving again. Uh, And again, that was kind of successful. We had a massive housing boom again over the past decade. I think what we're starting to see now, though, is that people who are, are suffering the cost of that, if you like, so those who are stuck in the private rented sector, for example, who've got absolutely no prospect of ever owning a home, um, that group is actually now very large and growing. And in London, renters have actually overtaken uh, owners for the first time, I think it was last year or the year before, and that has a quite an impact on the political economy, I think, of, of, the, of the situation. But what will be interesting this time around is we've got another unprecedented economic crisis. We're looking at double-digit recession this year. The government's obviously going to be trying to do what it can, as I said, to kind of prop up that rent rent extraction model to get the economy back to where it was. I think the Treasury and, and, the, and the UK government general have got themselves uh, in a bit of a bind, because on the one hand, of course, um, large chunks of the population, uh, certainly when it comes to housing, have been benefiting from this system. And this was obviously... Part of the whole. Uh, this was, in any ways, the objective of Thatcher's housing revolution, the right. property owning democracy, was to try and ramp up homeownership to as high as possible, give people a stake in the in private property, give people a stake in effectively rent extraction, uh, and that will make them, you know, more more likely to be favourable towards the kind of policies that the Tories might be putting forward. Now we've got to a situation where much of the electorate's wealth household wealth is tied up in their property or indeed multiple properties and don't look very favorably on any kind of policies that might seek to you know harm that wealth if you like uh, and the Tories it's interesting because they I think the penny has dropped that they really need to do something about uh, housing in particular, because this is one of the key issues for young people. But they haven't, I don't think, understood the, the point which you made earlier, which is that this is fundamentally a zero-sum game. I mean, if you just read the, 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 the press, even the financial press, when house prices go up, it's, it's sort of celebrated as you know, a good thing for the economy. And, and remember as well, when house prices go up, the amount of wealth, paper wealth in the economy as, as recorded on the books by the ONS, also increases, so it makes us look wealthier. What isn't captured, of course, in the books is the fact that that wealth that somebody's gained on their own personal balance sheet, there's a cost to that, which is somebody somewhere is gonna have to pay higher rents if it's gonna be rented out, or they're gonna have to save up more for a deposit and pay more in interest on a mortgage to pay that back. And so it's basically a transfer of wealth. It's not wealth creation, it's a transfer of wealth away from those who don't own property to those who do own property. But I, I, do, I do think, I don't think that this penny has dropped. As I say, even many economists will still sort of see house price growth as a sort of legitimate form of wealth creation rather than what it actually is, which is wealth extraction.
0: Progress and poverty, eh? Someone should write a book on that. <laughs> so I'm going to make you uh, UK Chancellor for the day. Uh, which three things would you begin to do to start to pivot away from a property-owning democracy where you get all this unearned wealth in housing to starting to uh, refloat the real economy, especially uh, in light of what's coming down the track and climate breakdown.
3: So the first thing I would do is something which the government has sort of hinted that it's looking at. Um, So a couple of weeks ago, it was reported in the FT that the the treasury has a project called Project Birch And that's at looking at starting some kind of state holding company, a sort of social wealth fund, public wealth fund, which uh, in their eyes, its it's role would basically be to buy stakes in companies who are really struggling, strategically important companies who are struggling under COVID, and basically buy stakes in them, uh, help them get through the crisis, and then no doubt, knowing this government, probably flog them back to the private sector. What I would do is absolutely start a state holding company or, or or a public wealth fund, Buying up strategic assets and companies, but doing that not in a way to just socialize losses and then privatize them again, but to to do that and apps and transform them. So maybe we maybe we should bail out the the airlines, but not to just make you know hold on to them and then sell them off, to transform them, decarbonize their op- op- operations entirely, put them on a path, a sustainable path. Same with other industries, the steel industry, for example. Yes, let's take some equity stakes in there. Let's link it to a proper Industrial strategy that's going to take us from here to a much more sustainable economy um, in future. The second thing I would do is we should remember that after the last crisis, uh, the government bailed out uh, the banks, and we still own the majority shareholding in RBS. Right. Um, It's about sixty-three percent or something like that, and the government still pretends that it's going to drive, it's going to sell us off again as soon as the share price gets back to the right level. And of course, it's probably not going to get back to the right level. So what I think they should do is they should. Basically, buy up the rest of the stakes, the, the remaining thirty percent or whatever it is it's dirt cheap at the moment, and transform RBS into a proper uh, public uh, public interest bank that's, uh, that's geared towards serving the real economy that's, that's geared towards helping businesses and households uh, with their finances, helping businesses and households make that green transition, for example. The third thing I would do if I was the chancellor is, is set out a, a, a sort of a basically an announcement that basically says sets the expectation, puts a flag down on the ground that says, look, going forward, we are going to end house price inflation in this country. Going forward, we are, we are not going to be tolerating or promoting you know, the kind of house, house price inflation that you've become accustomed to over recent years. And make it clear to people, look, if you thought you could rely on property to pay off your pension in the future, well, actually you can't because, um, you know, this isn't going to be the way it was before. And setting that expectation but backing up with some clear policies about what's going to be implemented, I think could begin that process of starting to change people's behaviour, change incentives in the economy to wean us off this dependence on, you know, property, uh, asset price and inflation and, and move us into a more uh, sensible kind of economy.
0: All right, McFarlane, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. That's it from Renegade Inc. this week. You can drop the team a mail, studio at renegadeinc.com, or you can tweet us at Renegade Inc. Join us next week for more insight from those people who are thinking differently, but until then, stay curious.